Let's now in turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, a common Christmas passage. Over the last several weeks, we have been focusing our attention on the birth of Christ. As we celebrate Christmas, if we would truly understand what it is all about, if we would truly understand the meaning of Christmas, we need to look at the character of Christ. We need to see who He is and what He came to do. We will not find the true meaning of Christmas outlined for us in any of our favorite secular Christmas movies. I'm not saying don't watch them. I'm just saying you're not going to find the true meaning of Christmas there. You're not going to find it in the opening of presents on Saturday morning or Friday night or whenever it is you do that. All of those things are well and good, but they're, they are secondary compared to looking at what the true meaning of Christmas is, and that is Jesus, who He is, and what He came to this earth to do. He is not just a baby in the manger, and He is not just a good man who lived a good life. He is the Son of God. He is the eternal Lord, the Creator of all things and the promised Savior of His people. He didn't come just to make our lives a little better, to enhance our earthly experience. He came to rescue us out of darkness and reconcile us to God. And understanding this is crucial to understanding the significance of His birth. And while we meditate on the birth of Christ, and we consider the significance of that baby in a manger, our response must not be one of merely just warm feelings for the holiday and, and, and feelings and sentiments of appreciation. Rather, our response must be one of true awe and wonder, and we must fall down before Him in wholehearted worship and life-dominating service because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He has come to save us from our sin. So as we continue our study for Advent this morning, we come to one of the most well-known and probably all too familiar passages of Scripture. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. This passage tells us the story and it gives us the details of where and how Jesus was born. And it helps us to get a glimpse of why. As we study it, we learn about the character of God the Father, and we learn about the character of Christ the Son. And we see how crucial of a milestone this is in the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation that began all the way back in Genesis and culminates at the end of Revelation. With that in mind, let's attempt to read Luke 2, 1 through 20 with fresh eyes this morning as we study this passage. You'll follow along with me as I read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came, and they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As we work through this passage, I want us to consider it in, in three portions, because this is a sermon, and that's what we do. And I think it'll be helpful. I want us to see, first of all, the arrival of the Savior, and then we'll progress from that to the announcement of the Savior, and then we'll finish by looking at the response to the Savior throughout this passage. Let's look, first of all, at the arrival of the Savior in verses 1 through 7. In order to understand any story in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we need to understand the circumstances surrounding that story, surrounding the main events in that story. Otherwise, we end up picking and choosing a few details and applying them in a way that it wasn't meant to be applied. So when we look at a story, whether it be Old Testament or New, we need to understand the historical context. And that's what this passage does. It explains to us what is going on in the world around the time that Jesus was born. It gives us these details and brings these details together in such a remarkable way that only God could make it happen. There were so many details and so many prophecies about the Messiah, about the birth of the Savior, that for all of those things to converge in this one story, no one could make this up. Only God could make this happen. Only God could situate every little detail to be fulfilled in exactly the right way. And this passage shows us, in part, how that happened. 
Verse 1 begins, in those days. Immediately we ought to ask, in what days? Well, in Bible times, of course. Back in those days. Yeah, what do we know about those days? And what days specifically are we talking about? To know that, we need to look at chapter 1. If you look back in chapter 1 and verse 5, we read that these are the days of Herod, king of Judah. Okay, so what does that mean? Who is that referring to? Well, this is referring to a man called Herod the Great, who was an evil and ruthless ruler in Judea, in Israel. This is the Herod who is known among the Jews for rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And to say he was a king might be a little bit of an overstatement in terms of our understanding of a king. He was a vassal or servant king under the authority of the Roman emperor. Roman Empire. That's what's going on here. So these are the days of the oppressive Roman occupation of Israel. And Herod was a local Roman leader who was assigned to the Jews. And so, as you might imagine, the Jews hate Herod. Because the Jews hate the Roman Empire. Why do the Jews hate the Roman Empire? Well, for several reasons. There are theological reasons and there are practical reasons. For one thing, these were unclean Gentiles who had come in and taken authority over God's elected people. For another thing, these Romans were blatantly idolatrous and pagan. And so they had defiled and they had corrupted Jewish culture. And there was this blending of the cultures that created no small conflict among the Jews. And thirdly, these Romans enacted this oppressive taxation system over them, making life very difficult and very burdensome for them. And yet there was a benefit to Rome being in charge at this time. In spite of all of the spiritual darkness of the Roman Empire, these were days in which that empire almost literally paved the way for the rapid spread of information throughout the world that culminated and opened the way for the rapid spread of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. At least as far as it was known according to the history books. And so that's why the Apostle Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 4 that this was the fullness of time. The perfect moment for Jesus to be born and to complete his redemptive mission. The story had led up to it. Earthly circumstances had led up to it. The darkness of mankind had led up to it. And the fallout would be earth-reaching. God has orchestrated every event of history according to his precise plan to lead up to this very moment and to bring about his sovereign purpose. So, in those days is a significant phrase. Then it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Well, who was Caesar Augustus? Again, we need to ask that question. And what is this decree? Well, it is helpful to understand that Caesar Augustus is not a name. 
He didn't pull out his driver's license and it said Augustus, Caesar. Caesar Augustus is a title. Calling a man Caesar is, this, is in the same league as calling a man Pharaoh or Czar or in our context even Mr. President. That's not his name, that's his title reflecting his position. It was a royal title. And in the same way, Augustus, as far as we understand, was not so much a name as it was a description of that man. The word means revered, esteemed, or honored. In other words, this decree was made by the Caesar, who was known as Augustus. And there is an implication here from that title Augustus that suggests this Roman emperor was the first one to be viewed as a god. There did come a point around this time when emperor worship was on the rise. In fact, it, had, it would soon become required throughout the, emperor, the empire, which is why New Testament Christians had such a hard time because they had to offer that pinch of incense and say what? Caesar's Lord. And if they did that, they were allowed to keep whatever other religion they wanted to do. And the Christians wouldn't do that. This is, these are the circumstances leading to that. What is a decree? The decree is a legally binding edict that is made by the emperor. And so the irony is interesting here. The would-be God issues a decree that paves the way for the arrival of the true God. Because the result of this decree is going to put Joseph and Mary right in the right spot at just the right time for the right event to happen, for the Savior to be born. And so what was the nature of this decree? Verse 1 continues, This decree is that all the world should be registered. By this time, there was scarcely a place in any part of the world, at least according to the history books and what the, the, the known world, that was not under the rule or at least the influence of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was, in a very real sense, the known world. Registered refers to a census. Why does a king take a census? Because he wants to tax the people. That's what's going on here. That all the world should be registered. You see, the Romans were aggressively building up their infrastructure while at the same time continuing to try to uh, conquer the rest of the world. And so the emperor wants to make sure to squeeze every little bit out of the people he possibly can. Now Luke, who is ever the diligent historian, goes on in verse 2 to add, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Sounds like a meaningless historical detail, what it shows us is that, this, that there were many censuses, many registrations that took place. Judea was under the jurisdiction of Syria. Governor is just a nondescript term that talks about somebody who's uh, in administrative leadership there. And the name of this governor is Quirinius. These censuses occurred roughly every 14 years. We could go into a deeper study of that, but the bottom line of those details is that that helps us pinpoint the birth of Christ. 
likely somewhere around 6 to 4 BC. Okay? Now, all of that sets up the context for verse 3. And here's where the story starts to move forward a little bit. Verse 3 says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, one's own town, in a Jewish context, has to do with his place of ancestral origin, so where his ancestors came from. And in, among the Jews, that would have been according to tribe. I'm not entirely convinced that the Romans said, go by, tribe by tribe, but that likely was how the Jewish, the Jewish context administered that. So nonetheless, however it comes about, God is at work to put Joseph into the place he needs to be and to put Mary in the place that she needs to be. God is orchestrating all of these events to line them up just right. And so verse 4 tells us, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Okay, Royal line, that's important. But when it says he went up, Understand, he's traveling south, but he's going up in elevation. From Galilee to Judea to the town of Bethlehem, which is the city of David. Joseph is in the physical line, lineage of King David. That factors in importantly because the prophecies of the promised Savior of the birth of this child are that he is going to be one who follows in the line. He is of the, of the line of David, who will rule on the throne of David. So Joseph makes this trip to Judea. And in verse 5, we read that he, that he did it to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And we talked about what it means to be betrothed last week, sort of like a, a legally binding engagement. But why Mary had to make this trip is unclear. You would think Joseph could go register on her behalf as the head of their home, right? And save Mary the arduous trip from Galilee, from Nazareth, down to Bethlehem. You would think that's what could happen. But whether it was legally required or whether it was just that Mary knew probably going to have this baby on the trip and I want to be with Joseph when it happens. Whatever it is, she travels with him. And when it says that she was with child, that is no doubt an understatement. I like the way the King James puts it. She was great with child. Right? She's late in her pregnancy. right? She knows that she's probably going to have the baby on this trip. This was a rigorous, grueling, and even dangerous trip for her. The terrain was rough. The, the weather likely was cold at night. The conditions were, were harsh. And ordinarily, we would call Joseph a fool for taking her with him on this trip. But we know that God was up to something here. And so we, we need to give Joseph a little bit of a break. Now, that brings us to this point. Even if you've never heard the Christmas story before, you know where this is going, right? And verse 6 just comes right out and says it. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Of course it did. That's how this works. But we don't know how long they were there. My guess is they went, they registered, and then they settled down, I don't know, in the area for a few days or whatever it was. 
Um, my guess is they wanted to stay put during that time. I don't know that Joseph wanted to take her on the trip back without having that baby. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because they knew the prophecies and they just wanted to stay put. But sure enough, while they're there, the time comes. And verse 7 says, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And it's really interesting to me, after all that buildup, how nondescript it is. Right? Six verses of, here's where this going, verse 7, and she gave birth. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, which is what every mother would have done right after the birth of her baby. And then it says, she laid him in a manger. And this is where we get into the real point. See, the actual act of giving birth is not really the point of the story. But Luke goes on and calls this child her firstborn son, which means he is the heir, which helps to confirm the assertion from Scripture that Mary was still a virgin. But Jesus now, this child, is the heir. And though there certainly isn't much in the family to pass on in terms of wealth or possessions, it makes it clear that with Joseph and, and, and their relationship and their lineage, that this is one who will be in the line of King David, who will have that rightful position on the throne of David. And then Luke mentions Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That's not unusual. Every mother would have done this for her firstborn child. But I think the phrase is added there to, to remind us this child is a real child who was really born to a real person as a real baby. Right? None of this, well, he just appeared out of heaven or, or he wasn't fully human. No, he is truly human. And he was born like a human baby. And he was treated as such. That phrase helps to take some of the embellishment out of the story and some of the misunderstanding. But then we read that she laid him in a manger. Now that part is unusual. And it shows us the kind of condescension, the kind of humility and the, the humble circumstances into which Jesus was born. Why did Mary lay him in a manger? I think that's a pretty simple question to answer, right? Because there wasn't anywhere else to lay him. It was the manger or the hard floor. Why was a manger the option? Well, the text tells us there was no place for them in the inn. See, a manger was a feeding trough for the animals. It wasn't a bed. We need to understand that when it says there was no place for them in the inn, it's not referring to some sort of first century or pre-first century hotel. right? And there was no innkeeper, by the way. Not that we read about. Right? So this wasn't, you know, ding on the front desk. Is there any vacancy? And how, what's your continental breakfast like? That's not what is going on here. But I also don't think this was exactly a stable like we might think of a stable, except maybe if you're thinking about a horse barn, right? That, where the horses are and they have the stalls or whatever, I don't know. Tradition holds that Jesus was born in a cape, but I think that's speculation as well. One commentator, I think, has helpfully described the scene that I think helps to bring some color to this. 
In a small town like that, there was probably some sort of shelter structure, kind of like a barn, that had two sections or two levels. One area was for the animals, where you would put your animals in a safe spot, out of, you know, in shelter from the weather. You'd be able to feed them, hence the manger. And the other section might have been for the travelers, where the people would bed down, where the people would get out of the elements and have their shelter. Well, with all of the traveling for the census that was going on, it appears that whatever the structure was, was full. The people were taking up all of the space. So Mary and Joseph would have found a space where the animals were. That makes sense, right? At least it got them out of the cold for the night, into some kind of shelter. And then, when it's time to have that baby, it's better to have it there than to risk the elements, right? Find a comfortable spot. Joseph probably did the best he could. Whatever it looked like, the point is this. Mary and Joseph probably weren't alone when Jesus was born. I expect there was at least a small crowd that was nearby hearing this. And you men are thinking, I'm glad about that. Joseph didn't have to deliver this baby alone, right? There were some people there probably that could help. That would be a good thing. But if you think about it, this is not a comfortable situation for anybody. You're in the stable looking for a quiet, or, or in the other side, you're looking for a quiet night's rest. And here comes Mary. And you're thinking, oh no. Mary is having this baby in a barn and all these people are over there. And she's thinking, oh no. And Joseph is not even, he's whoa, whatever. Right? We get that. But I do think it is important for us to see in this scene the details because they highlight the conditions into which our Savior was born. And it is so counterintuitive, isn't it? And it sets the tone for the kind of life this Savior would live. And so that is the importance of these first seven verses, just to set the scene for us. They show us the extent of God's love and of Jesus' humility to leave the glorious golden courts of heaven, surrounded by the hosts of heaven who sing His praise day and night, and to come into this dark world and to live and to suffer and to die for us. But here it is. The moment that all history has been waiting for and working up toward. The moment that the, the Old Testament has been preparing us for, it's here, right there, in the barn. The baby is in the manger. The Messiah, the Chosen One, the Savior of the world has arrived. And that brings us to the next section of the text. Verses 8 through 14, where we see the announcement of the Savior. Now, if you will, that the news has happened, the news will spread. And in this passage, the news spreads first from angels to shepherds. And that in and of itself is remarkable. From a marketing and public relations perspective, if you want to get the message out and compel people that it is important and worth listening to, angels is a pretty good way to go. Send the angels with the bright light. 
the trumpets, the multitude, send it. But send them into the field to the shepherds, and only the shepherds, that's a marketing disaster. You don't do that. That's not human wisdom right there. These shepherds were not the upper crust of society. They were lowly, they were despised, they were the outskirts of the town. That's where they lived. And that certainly is a surprising humility for the announcement of one who is so majestic, isn't it? We read later, Herod, a king, is left scratching his head. Wait, what? A king? Wait, where? Where where is he to be found? Can you help me out? But the shepherds knew. It shows us that the gospel is not for those that the world deems worthy. Or that the world deems deserving. It's for us. And don't we praise the Lord for that? God was not arrogant in his delivering of the message. He went to the very lower crust of society. And from them the message spreads. And that tells us something about our Savior and the gospel we believe. Now verse 8 tells us then, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So the scene shifts to an area near Bethlehem, out in the field, in the countryside. And we don't know how many shepherds there were, but we do know where they stood on the social ladder. That doesn't mean that it was an illegitimate line of work. It just means that it was not a respected line of work necessarily in the society. They were not the cream of the social crop. They were lowly, they were humble, and they certainly were not the ones that anyone would expect to be the first recipients of a gospel message like this. But it goes back to Isaiah that we looked at a few weeks ago, doesn't it? When you think about those who were in contempt, have been made glorious. Well, here's another example of that. They were the lowly and the humble. And this is a testimony of God's ministry to the lowly and to the outcast. His ministry was not to the wealthy and the self-righteous or the self-sufficient. So if you think because you are respectable in this world that you are worthy of God's gospel, you have not yet come to a point of the ability to receive it. This message was given to the poor and the lowly and the afflicted to the ones who know they have nothing. Verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. It implies suddenness. These guys are just going on about their evening, shepherding their sheep. Maybe they're in the fold, maybe they're still, I don't know. But here they are doing their job, and, and all of a sudden there's an angel. And they know it's an angel, not just because the text says so, but it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. That's not just the angel. It's These guys are all of a sudden under a light. <laughs> uh, and, and, and here's this angel. I don't know uh, if he looks like a, a man or if he looks more like a heavenly creature or what it is. I don't know if he's in the air or if he's standing on the land, but whatever it is, he's there. And they know what's going on and they are filled with great fear. So they know this is not just some guy who walked up to them in the field. 
the, the entire countryside, or at least the area immediately around the shepherds, is lit up with heavenly glory. And as men do when they are confronted with a glimpse of heavenly glory, these men quiver in fear for their lives, thinking we're dead men. And that is a reasonable response, isn't it? You see, in the light of God's glory, and in the light of His perfection, we are able to see our deep sinfulness as it really is. And our natural, immediate response is fear. Friends, evaluate your hearts today. Because I get a sense that among many Christians today, we like to think of God as nice and warm and welcoming. And I fear that many who claim the name of Christ have never come to a point of fear at His holiness. If we don't come to a point of fear because God is holy and we are not, then I don't know that we have a true understanding of our sin. And if we don't have a true understanding of our sin, how can we have a true understanding of repentance? And if we can't repent, we can't be saved. Friends, evaluate your hearts. Have you come to a point of a true, humbling fear before the Lord? Because when we get a glimpse of His glory and His holiness, we find ourselves open and exposed before Him and guilty. That's the bad news part that makes the glory of the gospel so glorious that He does save but he saves sinners. So the angel speaks words of comfort to these terrified shepherds. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not. What a phrase that is coming from heavenly glory. It's okay. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Reverend fear is good for God's people when they think on who God is. But believers do not have to be terrified in the presence of holy God because we have received good news. This is good news for us. This message the angel brings is not a message of judgment. It is a message of mercy and grace. It is gospel news for those who know they have nothing else. And the angel says it is good news of great joy. That's that word mega again that we saw last time. Mega joy, unspeakable joy. There is nothing under your tree that compares to this. And the recipients and the target of this great news, this unspeakable joy, is, he says, all the people. All the people. That is, all the nations. God's message of salvation was introduced through the Jews, but it was never limited to them. It was meant to permeate the whole world. And here, this news is beginning to spread. This is not just for one nation or for one ethnic group or for one social class. This is good news for everyone to hear. And then in verse 11, the angel gives the news. 
For unto you is born this day, unto you shepherds out in the field, unto you lower crust of society, unto you the ones who are despised and rejected is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the focal point of the whole passage, and it is the heart of the gospel message that we embrace today. All people are sinners. All people are guilty before holy God and in desperate need of a Savior. All people of all time in the Old Testament and in the New are saved only through this Savior. So this child, this Jesus, is no ordinary man. And he was not sent merely to be a good example or a motivational figure. It could never be that way. He is nothing less than God himself who has come in human flesh to be the Savior of his people. And this world languishes in hopelessness and darkness, but a Savior has come to bring light and life to all who believe. Truly, this is the greatest of all news possible, isn't it? And the angel says, this one who has been born was born for them. Unto you. Unto you. For your benefit. For your good. For your joy. This Savior has been given. And then those words. There is no flippant title that is used for Christ, or for any member of the Godhead. It is significant when we read a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That title, Savior, again, these are not names, these are titles for Him. Savior has the idea that He was born to save His people from their sins, like we read about in Matthew 1 earlier. Christ is a word that means Messiah. It's the Greek New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. It means anointed one or promised one, the one who has been sent to carry out the mission of God. And it carries the idea of his position of honor as the king of kings. This is a title that sums up the idea that he is the chosen prophet and priest and king who will rule on David's throne. He is no ordinary child. And Lord not only has the idea of respect and esteem, but it is a title that is given to God himself, and it refers to his divine and sovereign authority. And it also suggests the role that he is to play in the lives of his people. He is not just the Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is meant to be your Savior who is Christ the Lord your Lord. And so we must confess him as Lord for salvation. So here it is. The angel has just announced that the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of all creation, has been born in Bethlehem of all places. And this news is huge. This is earth-shaking news. This is the moment for which they had waited for centuries. It's here. And now the question is, 
Will they believe? Do they have the eyes to see it? Well, friends, do you? The angel goes on in verse 12, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's interesting, the angel assumes they're going to go. He doesn't say, okay, now, now be on your way, go check it out. No, he's like, you're going to go, I know it, and here's what you're going to see. Here's what you need to look for. All right, this, he, he tells them there's going to be a tangible sign that they could recognize him when they see him, if they're looking. And it would be proof that not only has it happened, but this one is exactly as the angel has described him, Savior, Christ the Lord. Swaddling cloths, as we noted earlier, are not unusual, but he says you're going to find them. In this case, the angel mentions it to show the shepherds that they need to know they're looking for a newborn baby. Okay, so far so good. Manger is a little bit unusual, as we saw. So now, okay, what kind of baby are we looking for? We're looking for one that's in a manger, one that's kind of in the stable, in the manger. They're looking for a specific baby. Is that enough information for them to find him? He doesn't say go down 3rd Street and turn left on B Avenue and 4th Stable on the... No, is, is this enough? Yeah, I think it is. Because at this point, I think the shepherds could have wandered into town and said, we're looking for a baby that's lying in a manger. And I suspect that there would be somebody around town who would be able to say, oh yeah, over there. Right? Remember, they weren't alone. This is probably... A little bit of a buzz in town. And so they go. Someone would have been able to point them in the right direction. But again, I think the bigger point here is the fact that these details, now repeated in the text, highlight the fact that this was the king of creation announced by the angels who was born in the humblest of circumstances. Paul again talks about that in Philippians. Remember that in Philippians chapter 2? when he says that Jesus made himself nothing and took on himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He laid aside his heavenly glory and he humbled himself by taking on human flesh. What a wonderful humility. What a powerful condescension for God to reach down to us in such a way. Well, the angel hasn't left yet. In verse 13, the angel, uh, we, we read this, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. Another sudden appearance, this time by a large number of angels, maybe in the sky, maybe scattered around the landscape. I don't know. The text doesn't say, but it does say that there were a lot of them. I read somewhere this word multitude is from a, the Greek word meaning myriad that refers to 10,000, the highest number for which there was a word. But then it occurred to me as I was reading in Revelation the other day that in Revelation there's a reference to 144,000. There's a reference to 20,000, which means, sort of hints to me that this might have even been more than 10,000. This could have been just an innumerable crowd of angels gathered around. Too many to count. My guess is that the whole host of heaven was singing praises to this newborn king on that night. 
and all heaven breaks into praise to the Son. You see, praising God is what angels do constantly. And here we are given a glimpse of what that praise looks like. I wish I could have seen it. One day we will. We see their song in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All glory and praise to the God of heaven, they sing. And on earth, God's creation where his people dwell, peace is to be given. Now that's not universal peace. Not yet. But this is the peace that comes with salvation. Jesus is, after all, the Prince of Peace, who reconciles men to God the Father and gives us peace with God. That is true peace. God never promised perfect peace on earth and goodwill toward men, at least not until his second coming. The peace that he gives now is a different kind of peace than what the world defines. The kind of peace that only belongs to God's children. It is the peace of being right with God. It is the peace of being reconciled to him and under his grace and mercy rather than under his judgment. Just as we were meant to be from the beginning. And what it says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It is not teaching works salvation as if God will extend his peace to whoever earns it or whoever finds a way to please him. That's not what, it, what this is getting at. It is teaching that God gives peace to those on whom his favor rests. That is those who have received the precious gift of salvation. Those who are the objects of his gracious and electing and saving goodwill. This is good news. Because it means that salvation is available not just to the Jews, but to all nations. It is available not just to the rich, but to all. It is available not just to a certain segment of society, but to everyone, all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. This is the gospel message. And that brings us to the final section of our text, verses 15 to 20, where we see the response to the Savior. Having heard the announcement and the proclamation of the gospel of salvation and eternal peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we do now? What does man do now? Well, verse 15 says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, I don't know how long they stayed, but I don't think they lingered long because the shepherds have somewhere to go and something to do. And here's what we read. When they leave, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They immediately start discussing what they had just seen, as you might imagine. And the only response then, the only reasonable response is to go and find out what it was. So we're going to lock up our sheep. We're going to make sure they're taken care of. And now let's go. If what these angels said was true, then there is nothing more important to do than to go find this child. And friends, what they said is true. And so for you and me today, there is nothing more important than finding Jesus. And here we learn a little bit about what salvation looks like 
what true salvation looks like, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and responding to the gospel by coming to Jesus. In verse 16, we continue. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They find it all just like the angel had said. They heard the message, they believed the message, and then they come to Jesus. They would have traveled about two miles that night. As I said, I don't, I don't think it would have been too hard for them to find the baby. Bethlehem was a small town and this was what was going on. But the key now is that these shepherds come into the scene knowing something that most of the onlookers probably didn't know yet. They know who this child is. This is the Savior of the world. And can you imagine the conversation that went on between the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and whoever else happened to be sitting around that night? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the amazement, the wonder, the excitement, the anxiety? Talking about what they knew, no doubt would have confirmed and strengthened them in their faith. But here we see Another crucial point of salvation, those who truly believe will come to Jesus and will accept his invitation. So here they are, they've come. And then verse 17 continues. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told them, that had been told them concerning this child. After hearing and believing and finding Jesus, the next natural response for the shepherds was what? To start telling other people what they knew. Probably starting right there in the shelter, they told everyone the good news. They tell them what the angels had said. They made known what they had heard from their conversation with Mary and Joseph. And, and they start talking about it. And here we see another aspect of what their true salvation looks like. They, they hear the gospel. They believe the gospel. They receive the gospel. They find Jesus. They accept that invitation. And then one indicator of our spiritual conversion and of our spiritual health and of our understanding of who Jesus is, is then to go out and have a zeal to tell others about him. Those who truly know Jesus and who have experienced his saving grace desire to declare his praise wherever they go. Then verse 18 continues, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. The word wonder has the idea of amazement. Or astonishment. Many who came into contact with Jesus here and throughout his life were amazed. And hear me. Amazement and wonder does not mean commitment. It is a common problem then and now to be curiously impressed by Jesus to some degree and yet not willing to follow him, not willing to commit to him, not willing to submit to him. I don't think there's a person in this room who doesn't know who Jesus is. I don't think there's a person in this room who doesn't have some level of appreciation for that. But I wonder, is there somebody in this room who, in spite of knowing all of that, has yet to submit to him as their Lord, has yet to follow him, For most of the people who heard the news that the shepherds proclaimed, there was no lasting change of heart. There was no lasting commitment to Christ. Friends, are you curious about Jesus? 
yet still not interested in following him? Are you ready to acknowledge that he is the Lord? And yet not willing really to give your life over to him? Are your thoughts of Jesus during the Christmas season merely thoughts of appreciation without submission? The measure of your relationship with God is not how much you know about him, but whether that knowledge affects your life. If he is to be your Savior, he must be your Lord. You cannot escape that. He must be your master. In verse 19, Mary's response to all of this, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That word ponder means to meditate, or to contemplate, to think about, to mull this over in her mind and consider the significance of it all. Who is Jesus? What is he here to do? What is this going to mean for me? What is it going to look like? How is it all going to play out? What is God up to? All of these things, no doubt, are swirling in her mind. But whether it be the shepherds who are believing and then proclaiming, or whether it be Mary who also believes and is now taking this to heart in her own life, here is another aspect of salvation. It is not just a passing fad in our lives. It is not just a loose and casual confirmation of some facts. This is something that takes root deep in our hearts, and we grow deeper in our understanding of it and our meditation on it as we go throughout our lives. Christians, this is a part of spiritual growth. Not just accepting Christ as an escape from hell and then going on about our lives. Not just saying, well, the law says do, but the gospel says done, and then sitting back and living however we want. People are teaching that. No, this is about a life that is transformed by the renewing of our minds through our study of the truth and our contemplation of the truth that God has revealed to us. It is a life of devotion to the Lord, of growth in His grace, of sanctification, of constant repentance. That's the life of a Christian. We come to verse 20 and we see one more crucial aspect of the salvation that Jesus gives. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Those who have received this good news of Jesus Christ not only open their mouths to proclaim it, but they also open their mouths to praise the Lord for it. These are worshiping people. And there is nothing greater that we can do with our time and our energy than to follow their example and devote all that we are and that all, all that we have to the praise and the service of a Savior who has given such a great gift to us. Now, to bring it to a conclusion, we're getting there. We're close. All right, ready? Two aspects of the essence of what we've seen in this passage. First of all, God is sovereign over the circumstances of history. You can't escape that. Only God could make all of these things line up just the way they did for the Savior to be born when and how he was. God is in charge of every moment, of every day, of every year, of, of every life that is represented here on earth, including yours today. 
Secondly, we see the crucial aspects of true salvation. Hearing the gospel of Jesus, believing the gospel of Jesus, responding to the gospel by coming to faith in Jesus, telling others about him, growing in knowledge and understanding of him through the study of his word that he has given to us, worshiping Jesus and praising him and making his glory and goodness and love known living a life that is truly following Him. So here's the real question. Do you acknowledge God to be the ruler of all things, including the supreme authority of your life? Because He is. And it will show up one way or the other in your life, either for your eternal joy or for your eternal condemnation. But that doesn't have to be a hard truth to you. That doesn't have to be a harsh reality. That can be your greatest joy. Because you've heard the gospel of Jesus. And so the question is, do you believe it? And will you receive it? And will you respond to it? And Christians, if you have, who are you telling? And are you growing? through the knowledge of Christ being transformed into holy and godly character to be like him. Friends, if the Christmas story means anything, this is it. This is it. Let's pray.